Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, what Germany's election tells us about voters' priorities. And we dig into the history of the Green Party, which has emerged as one of the kingmakers in the upcoming coalition negotiations. The climate question is definitely very in people's minds. And this is why the Greens got more support. Also, we talked to a researcher who studies the health benefits of saunas and hot baths, particularly after exercise. We can visually see that there's an increase in blood flow, which we think could underpin some of the health improvements. I'm Dan Reno in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Germany just had its general election, which decides who gets to sit in the Bundestag, the German parliament, and who gets to be Chancellor of Germany. Dan, this pretty remarkable thing happens on election night in Germany. Oh, what is that? I'm going to try my best German accent here. It's called the Elefantenrunde, or the Elephant's Round. We have elephants here in our American political system, but I imagine this is slightly different, right? Yeah, in this case, the elephants aren't referring to the logo of a political party, but they're referring to the candidates of all the main political parties. And the Elephant's Round is a live television debate that happens between all of them. Like after the polls close or something? Yeah, so the polls close at 6pm and the main broadcasters come out immediately with their projections of the results. And a couple of hours after that, they all make their way to this same television studio and they sit down and they debate. Robert Habeck, the number one with the Greens? That's kind of crazy. I can't imagine that ever happening in America. But is it civil or are people yelling about fraud and lies and being mean to each other? It's pretty civil, considering that these politicians have been campaigning against each other for months. But it's also a little cagey because... Germany's political system is designed in a way that makes coalitions between different parties a near certainty. So the party leaders need to start work immediately building one of those coalitions. Okay, that that makes it make a bit more sense. So Germany has a lot of political parties, right? Who won this year? Well, in these elections, the center-left Social Democratic Party, which is also called the SPD, came top with 206 seats in the Bundestag. Uh, their candidate for Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has been pushing the case to be the only party worthy of forming a coalition. Next came the conservative Christian Democratic Union, the CDU. The CDU's Armin Laschet, once the clear favourite in this election, now putting on a brave face. Third went to the Greens and then fourth to the Free Democratic Party, which is a liberal party. Okay, so those are the top four parties. And did any of them get enough seats in parliament to single-handedly elect the chancellor? No, because to have a majority in the Bundestag, you need 368 seats. Uh, So after the last election in 2017, it was the SPD and the CDU, those two big rival parties that came together to form a governing coalition under Angela Merkel as chancellor. Okay, coalition, that's what's needed here this year. And are those two parties, the SPD and the CDU, going to join forces again? That could happen, but what seems more likely is that the SPD or the CDU will join in coalition with two of the other smaller parties. To find out more, I called up Yasmin Riedel. My name is Yasmin Riedel. I'm located in Munich and I'm working at the Universität der Bundeswehr München. And I'm a political scientist and researching on party politics. My first question really is simple. So who do you think are the biggest winners and losers from this election? So it's CDU and CSU, they lost a lot of votes. We talk about a disaster for Angela Merkel's Conservative Party. They It's a historical loss of votes and they lost it towards the SPD. 
On the other hand, nobody thought that SPD and Olaf Scholz could make it to chancellor. So one would say, okay, this is a historical winner, but the union now tries to say, hey, we still got a yes for making government. On the other hand, the SPD, I think they, the last days, they at least hoped for better voting results. And the Greens, I think in their point of view, they would have expected better voting results. But on the other hand, they just doubled their results in comparison to 2017. It's going to be a much greener Bundestag because a lot more green representatives are going to be sitting there. And um, now the Greens, together with the FDP, which is the liberal party in Germany, they will make the chancellor because we will probably have a coalition out of three parties. I know that the margin of victory for the SPD is, is very slim, but why do you think they've managed to come out on top? It has, in my point of view, two different reasons. So the first reason is that there was a lot of negative press towards the union and especially to Armin Laschet, and also towards Annalena Baerbock as the chancellor candidate for the Green Party. And compared to them, Olaf Scholz, he stand better. This is a point a colleague of mine made, and to me it's pretty plausible. The corona pandemic gives us a lot of things to manage in the future, and most of them are economic related. He is the finance minister. He has a lot of governing experience in the federal government. And I think that Olaf Scholz represents at least the competency to solve these economic issues. It's difficult to draw big conclusions because the results are so close. But are there any things we can start to read into what the results tell us about what voters' priorities are? What I read out of the results is definitely a lot of strategic voting. For example, the very left party, they lost a lot of votes towards the Greens and the SPD. And this is a strategic voting. For example, if a a voter who prefers the left program, it would be a strategic decision to say, okay, I vote for Olaf Scholz, for SPD, and thus not to have a conservative government. And actually, we had a lot of voting shift from the CDU to the SPD. And I think it would indicate a left shift, or at least you won't win votes with right-wing issues. And a second point is the climate question is definitely very in people's minds. When I look around here in Berlin, they say it's time for a change, especially when it comes to the climate issue. I think everybody agrees we have to do something. And this is why the Greens got more support. So are there any kind of demographic things that have struck you as you've been looking at the results? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what we see is that the younger people, though up to 25, they prefer the Green Party. And also what a bit surprised me, the FDP, the Liberal Party. The youth are actually out in force at 22% with the FDP. And it surprised me because our Liberal Party is very economically liberal and not that much civic right liberal anymore. And for the older people, and this is nothing new, more the union, so the CDU and CSU together, and also the SPD. Yeah, these parties still address a lot of issues that are important for older people, like pensions.
it's nice to hear that climate change was a big issue for voters this time around. Definitely. And that clearly helped the Greens get to 14.8% of the vote share, as, as Yasmin said. But while it's not as much as they hoped for earlier on in the campaign, it's still nearly double their result in 2017. Now, because the Greens are one of the kingmakers in these negotiations to find Germany's next chancellor, we wanted to find out more about the party's history and how it got to this point. So I called up Nico Switek, a visiting professor at the University of Washington in Seattle and an expert on the German Greens. The German Greens are the only party who still has the history of reunification in their name. So it's Alliance 90 and the Greens as the official name. The Green Party in West Germany was founded in 1980, but there wasn't an equivalent in communist East Germany at the time. Ahead of the reunification of East and West Germany in 1990, a party called Alliance 90 formed in East Germany in opposition to the communist regime. So they said, if we merge with that party, we want to adapt the name and kind of show that we are groups from two different German states. And so they joined in 1993. And since then, there's like a German-wide Green Party. It wasn't just climate issues that dominated the Green Party's agenda in the early days. We associate Green with kind of environmentalist, ecological issues, but the groups that founded the parties were much more diverse. There were feminists or pacifists, even conservative extremists in a way, who framed ecological questions as national issues or conserving God's creation. So it was a very colorful group of people that started the parties. Also, over time, the party became distinctly more left. So there were more activists from new left groups or former Marxists or Trotskyists who saw the success of the party and understood it as a left party. So it was more about state involvement into the market, uh, higher taxation and a stronger role of the state in general. But while there were diverging views in the party at this time, it was environmental issues that brought the factions together. And at that time, they were the only party that brought forward those issues. Um, and the main mobilization instrument was the anti-nuclear protests. Support for nuclear energy was strong in Germany in the 1970s as a result of high oil prices. But this faltered after the Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986. So uh, Germany was trying to, to build nuclear power plants and that mobilized a lot of the supporters in saying we need to phase out nuclear energy and it's not a safe source for energy. And there were heavy protests outside of where projects were planned and built. The West German branch of the party, the Greens, entered the Bundestag in 1983. But they were reluctant participants in parliamentary democracy. They set themselves up as an anti-party party, using parliament as more of a stage to promote their ideas. And it took some time that they understood that actually you can change things if you are seriously engaged in parliamentary work. And you don't have to be in government, but even as the opposition, you can shape the agenda and put forward your issues. After the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the Greens were actually the only party reluctant to address the question of German reunification. So they even famously campaigned posters where they said, everybody's talking about German reunification, but we're talking about the weather, kind of meaning climate, right? It didn't work. And in the 1990 election, the Greens failed to pass the 5% vote share threshold required to take up seats in the Bundestag. But that electoral loss led to reorientation of the party. So there was a famous party congress where they changed the organizational rules of the party, but also shed some of their former radicalism. And so they were successful in reinventing the party and re-entering parliament in 1994. 
and in 1998, for the first time, they entered the national government in a red-green government with the, the Social Democrats. And that kind of meant another big push for normalization and moderation. Because, of course, if you're part of a government and there's a lot of constraints on governing, that kind of changed the party and, and even moved it more to the center of the, the party. But growing political success on the national level and the transformation of the party into a more mainstream force caused divisions within the party's membership. Their membership was a bit of a gaggle of oddballs to a certain extent. This is Chantal Sullivan-Thompson. She's a PhD researcher at the University of Leeds in England. My thesis looks specifically at the contemporary relationship of protest in the German Greens, particularly amongst party members, talking to members at party events, protest demonstrations, rallies, and conducting interviews as well with party members, but also politicians. Looking back to the origins of the Green Party, what did their membership look like at the beginning when the party was founded? So a lot of them had been involved in the student movement of the late 1960s in West Germany, which had then split off into various different movements, peace movement, ecological movement, anti-nuclear movement. This kind of came with it a bit of an alternative culture of members. So typically these were people who were maybe a bit anti-establishment. Certainly from sight, you could distinguish these people, kind of men with long hair, a lot of women, which was quite new in politics in post-war West Germany. So it was part of this milieu concerned more on issues like gender equality, sexual minorities and ecological issues. The wide membership base brought with it real differences in opinion, and there were two dominant factions that have roughly continued to this day. The fundamentalists, the fundies, versus the more kind of reformist, pragmatic realos. There's a lot of infighting. There's there's a kind of professionalization that goes on with an internal kind of radical grassroots democratic principles. That's when you start to get these diversions of opinion of what you actually want to achieve with this project. Do you want to be the radical party who are happy to be in the parliaments to be disruptive? Or are you willing to make a few compromises, willing to step into a coalition as a junior partner at the state level to actually enforce real change and not just be shouting about what needs to be changed. And that's where the main disagreement took place. When the party began moving towards the political centre after its election defeat in 1990, some members began turning away. And then what you get through the 90s is the most kind of fundamental members can see the direction that it's going. Um, so they leave to go then form environmental and other offshoots that are very small and don't amount to all that much. In 1998, when the Greens entered the Red-Green Coalition with the Social Democratic SPD under the chancellorship of Gerhard Schroeder, it was a big change of direction. This caused more divisions. And Joschka Fischer as the Former radical in the street, now suit-bearing um, foreign minister. His decision to engage German troops in combat in the Balkans in 1999 was very controversial. Nonviolence and pacifism was kind of core value of the Greens, and this was seen by particularly a lot of those in the peace movement as quite treacherous. And he was famously hit at a party conference in the head. Um with a paint bomb 
So there was a further exodus of people who felt betrayed in the membership in that respect. The Greens remained in government as part of the Red-Green Coalition until 2005, when Angela Merkel became Chancellor as the head of the Christian Democrats. After that, Nico Switek says the Greens spent some time in the wilderness. After the end of the Red-Green Coalition in 2005, there was a period where the Greens lost all of their government participation in the states, and there was the question, will they survive this shock? And then we see this phase of reorientation where the Greens start opening up for new coalition models on a subnational level. Germany's federal system, where each state has its own government, meant the Greens could start experimenting with different coalition partners at a local level. So they worked with the Christian Democrats in Hamburg in a black-green coalition, which of course is easier because it's a city-state. The CDU is more liberal, maybe a bit more progressive in that state. But they also worked with the Christian Democrats and the liberals in the Saarland, which is a very small uh, state. But so they were very strategically clever in extending their coalition options and trying out new coalition partners. In the past decade, the Greens have shifted to the centre even more, and that's taken them closer towards business in some states. So at times they were polling so strongly that they said there could be a Green Chancellor even, and that dilutes the party platform and you move into the centre and you're trying to attract a large part of the electorate, so it's harder to really offer radical uh, solutions. And a good example is the green regional branch in Baden-Württemberg, where we have the only green prime minister in Germany, Winfried Kretschmann. They were always doing the green strong in in Baden-Württemberg, but he captured the office after the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe. In Japan, where tonight nuclear officials there are warning of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. And he was re-elected twice already. And Baden-Württemberg is also home to a lot of industry, to automobile industry. Mercedes-Benz is in Stuttgart. So the criticism is that once the Greens are in power, they shed all of the radicalism and now they're not even pressuring uh, those companies that should do something that are responsible about reducing carbon emissions and that they're in government now and not uh, ambitious enough in pursuing uh, their agenda. And I think that's what a lot of rank and file activists in the party that still think, you know, we need to do a lot more, um, are worried that once the, the stronger the Greens get, the more diluted the platform and the less radical they are. And that's what you can see that Fridays for Future, the big international movement, is criticizing the Greens and saying they're not doing enough. I asked Chantal Sullivan-Thompson what the party's current membership base looks like. Political scientist Oscar Niedermeyer does a party membership survey and analysis every year, which helps to break down the kind of demographics of party members in Germany. Latest one for 2020 shows that 53% of Green members are aged 50 or under. So actually, more of their members are from generations far younger than that original milieu. And the analysis from the European elections in 2019, where the Greens came second, demonstrated that they were the most popular party for voters aged under 35. There is this sense that as we've entered the kind of 2010s and topics like the environment, and I would say also migration, that there are the more progressive views on those on those issues. They've converged with the Greens on the money with where German society is at at the moment. Chantal, in your own research, you've been going to protest rallies and talking to activists. What are you finding people's concerns are right now? I think One thing the Greens have managed to hold on to throughout 
their tenure in German politics is that they are seen as the most competent on climate protection and environmental protection. Particularly when I was doing my fieldwork in 2018-2019, you had the rise of the Fridays for Future movement and, and Greta Thunberg's prominence on the world stage. There was a sense that this is a really urgent topic, this is a really urgent question, and we could be doing a lot more. And for the members I spoke to who had joined since the last federal elections in 2017, they often cited this idea that they wanted to support democracy in Germany, because in 2017, that was when the right-wing alternative for Germany entered the national parliament. And That was after things like Brexit and the election of Trump. And so this idea of kind of Western liberal democracy being in quite a fragile state that needed defending was quite prominent amongst those members. Chantal says that there are still diverging opinions within the Greens about the best tactics to use to address the climate crisis. Certainly what became very clear when speaking to members were that there were those who were more concerned about the changes that they could sell to the general public of getting them to change their behaviour and that being on a larger scale to make an impact. But that understanding that if you go in really radically, you're very unlikely to win over hearts and minds. So you had that kind of more pragmatic stance on climate protection, environmental protection. And then you also had people who really wanted the Greens to talk more about system change, that actually the way that we are destroying the climate in their eyes is more about the way that we live and that the way Germany is kind of set up to operate. And so for them... It's not just about shifting everyone onto electric cars or onto bikes. Actually, it's about how do we stop people consuming, consuming. Economic growth actually is a contributing factor to resource consumption and environmental damage. When I spoke to Yasmin Riedel in the wake of this election, she told me that these concrete proposals for climate action possibly lost the Greens some votes. So in March, April, the Greens were very high. But when they decided their program and everything was written down, it got concrete for the SUV drivers. The people with a better economic income want to do something for climate change, but abstract. In the concrete, it means that we also have to do a lot of changing our lives. Yeah? For example, drive less cars or eat less meat. The question where we got our energy from changing these things. yeah. The climate change and the solving of this problem costs each individual a lot of change. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the Germans are not ready for that. The Greens are still kingmakers, even if they didn't do as well as they perhaps hoped earlier on in the campaign. So what role do you see them playing next in the coalition discussions? Are we going to see them have to make compromises as they go into the negotiations? Well, yes, compromises, they all have to do. This is a bit the concept of our democratic system. So we are more consensus oriented. They need to make compromises. Otherwise, they are not able to make a majority coalition. 
And what seems to be the next step is that the FDP and the Greens will talk to each other. And this is very interesting and somehow new because normally the winning party, the party with the most votes out of the election, starts to talk with the smaller parties to check out whether it is possible to build a coalition together. But now it seems that the kingmakers at first start to talk with each other and check out with whom. So with Laschet, the CDU, or with S SPD and uh, Olaf Scholz, with whom they could make a coalition. And I think the Greens and the FDP, they have different views how to solve the climate issue and which policies to implement for that. But I think they can come together because it's more a question of money for them. So the FDP looks more out of the economic box on it. And the Greens take more look on institutionalized things to how to solve it. They want to have higher taxes to finance the ecological transformation. So because of this, I think the main question is how to finance the policies. Great. Thanks so much, Yasmin. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. So for now... Angela Merkel, she's still in charge, right? Yeah, that's right. And it may be a few months before we find out who's going to replace her as the parties keep talking to each other in these coalition negotiations. Once a formal coalition agreement is agreed, some of the parties then may require a vote by their party members or some special delegates to decide whether they want to go ahead. And then there's going to be a formal vote in the Bundestag on who's actually going to be the next chancellor to replace Merkel. For more coverage of the German election and what the results mean for the rest of Europe, keep an eye on The Conversation. Hi, I'm Vanita Srivastava. Welcome to Don't Call Me Resilient, where we delve into systemic racism and the ways it permeates our everyday lives. This season, as we live through what feels like the world falling apart, we'll focus on imagining a better future together. We'll tackle everything from how we view pollution to the impact of data collection on marginalized communities to the crucial role of storytelling in surviving our current world and building a better one. There's a universality in this because there's universality in the idea that the sun eventually rises, that night becomes dawn. Our guests are scholars who study these issues and artists and activists leading the charge on the ground. We don't have to accept the technology that we're given. We can reinvent it. We can rethink it. We need to challenge the defaults. We'll talk about refusal and resistance, but we'll also talk about hope. It's not just documenting that pollution is colonialism, but thinking what could be a different theory of pollution that's about making the world I'd rather be in. So join us for our second season of Don't Call Me Resilient from The Conversation. Follow us and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Gemma, on to our next story this week. And we're talking about saunas and hot baths, but not just how nice they are. Oh, but they are so nice. They are nice, but they're actually quite good for you too, it turns out. I spoke with a researcher who studies the health benefits of long, regular soakings and how they can improve and even mimic the effects of exercise. My name's Charles Stewart, and I'm a PhD candidate at Coventry University in the Centre of Sport and Exercise Life Sciences. 
And uh, I'm investigating whether the use of post-exercise heat exposure can result in greater improvements in cardiovascular and metabolic health than exercise alone. So this can include your bath or hot tub or sauna. Um, but anything that increases body temperature is kind of what we're after. This, uh, you, I mean, I kind of hear about this stuff occasionally. People are like, oh, saunas are the key, saunas are the answer, or hot tubs. Uh, but where did this idea come from? How long has this been around in sports medicine that heating uh, can be really good for the body? Yeah, so although we're just starting to understand the reasons why hot tub bathing and sauna bathing and various other forms of heat therapy can improve health, it's not at all a new concept. Um, for example, the Roman Empire were well known for using Roman baths, which they anecdotally linked to improvements in health. On top of this, there's also a rich history in a range of different countries across the globe. And that's why it's now so well integrated into various cultures. For example, across Scandinavia, sauna bathing, Finnish sauna bathing specifically, is very popular. And in Japan, where they often use hot springs. And, you know, the evidence from these studies coming from these countries um, when they follow large cohorts of people over 30 or so years and they actually see that those who take part in heat therapy whether it's sauna or a hot bath more frequently and for longer durations have a reduction in the risk of cardiovascular disease such as heart attacks and strokes so it's been around for a long time and we're just kind of starting to understand now what the the mechanisms are behind it if you like so what specifically are you actually looking at tell me about your work here um, so our ongoing research is looking at whether a single post-aerobic exercise hot water immersion session can essentially extend or intensify the physiological responses of the previous bout of exercise, um, which then if we repeat over a period of months, may result in greater health improvements when compared to exercise training alone. So I'm specifically looking at physically inactive individuals. So we know that around about a quarter of adults are actually not meeting the minimum recommended physical activity levels, putting these individuals at a greater risk of cardiovascular disease and even possibly death later down the line. So the idea is that even though these individuals aren't meeting these guidelines, they might still be doing general physical activity, albeit lesser, so it might be less frequent, shorter in duration, not as intense in nature. But then if we use post-exercise hot tub bathing or sauna, um, we're specifically looking at hot tub bathing. It might then offer a solution to potentially enhance the physiological responses associated with eventually improvements in health. Okay, so uh, how are you doing this work? Walk me through a day in the lab uh, that you're working on. Um, so typically we start very early doors. The, the participant will arrive at the lab. He will then be randomized to one of three conditions where we're comparing the effects of post-exercise hot tub bathing. So this includes hot tub bathing alone, exercise alone, and then combining the two. Then we'll get the participant laying down or seated and get all the resting baseline measures. Then we'll pop them on the bike for, for a short duration of time. Really this duration is meant to replicate what these individuals typically do in their daily lives. Okay, so you got them in, you got them on the bike, uh, then what happens? We have a short period of time in which we need to take the measures, so the physiological responses. And these includes the blood flow in your arteries. So we do that through ultrasound. And we also take uh, blood measurement. And we're making sure we do this relatively rapidly because we want to capture this transient response if it's there. 
Uh, okay, so then you pop them in the tub. How hot is the tub? How, you know, do they you submerge them with tubes in their nose? Like, what's that look like? Yeah, so we're also measuring gas. Um, so we've got them attached to an Ultima, which measures oxygen and carbon dioxide. So that's on during exercise and during the tub. When they're in the tub, they're submerged up to their clavicle and they have their arms out on a float. And then they'll sit there for 30 minutes at a temperature of 40 degrees. And then during this period, we're also keeping track of, you know, thermal comfort, whether they're finding it too hot or or not. Um, also, any symptoms of potential uh, heat-related issues, so such as nausea, lightheadedness. Um, so we're just checking throughout on the on the well-being of the participant as well when he's seated in the tub. And then uh, presumably you measure the same stuff you did right after the exercise when you, they get out of the tub. Is that what happens? Yeah, exactly. And then through those measurements we can compare to other conditions and then establish whether we can extend the physiological responses that are linked to improvements in health. Are you guys getting any results? What have you started to find? So it's early stages. Typically, the acute responses tend to be relatively similar. So if you think about when you go for a run or a cycle, you normally get an elevation in body temperature. And in response to that increase in body temperature, you get an elevation in heart rate and also an increase in blood flow. Now, the increase in blood flow is for two main reasons. First of all, it's to supply your muscle with oxygen and nutrients, essentially. So it's that metabolic demand, but also an increase in blood flow to your skin, so your periphery, so you can dissipate the heat. And all of this also occurs during heat therapy, so whether it's your hot tub or your sauna. When we're using the ultrasound, scanning their artery, we can visually see that there's an increase in, in blood flow which is an important response for us and we, we think or suspect could underpin some of the health improvements. So yeah, there are initial promising signs, but we're yet to analyze it. But other research groups have done a previous work in the area and, and found positive findings. Why does exercise actually make you healthier? Increasing blood flow is an important one. Um, and we suspect that as you get an increase in blood flow, you get what's known as shear stress. So this is a friction of the blood against the endothelium of, of your blood vessel. And this stimulus is important for the release of various angiogenic and vasodilatory molecules into your bloodstream. Essentially, these are molecules that will help with blood vessel health and repair. So vasodilation is when your arteries widen. And then if you re repeat this response over a long period of time, you may eventually cause some functional improvements in the artery, which are good for vascular health. And angiogenesis is the increase in the number of blood vessels, so the growth of new blood vessels. Sure. In your experiment, you're doing tub, no exercise, exercise, no tub, and then exercise and tub. If you just jump in a hot tub, for example, do you start to see some of the signs of uh, you know, the benefits you were mentioning? Yeah, I appreciate up to this point, I've been very positive about hot tub bathing and heat therapy on the hot, um, for improving cardiovascular health and metabolic health. But... We are by no means advocating heat therapy as a substitute for exercise. Rather, it's more of an alternative option on the days when you don't want to exercise or can't exercise and a means to potentially maximise the benefits from smaller amounts of physical activity or exercise when using it after. And, you know, to support my point, heat therapy is unlikely to replicate the capacity of exercise training to reduce body weight, for example, um, increase muscle mass and enhance bone strength. And this is because heat therapy doesn't involve any form of physical movement 
So if you look at, for example, energy expenditure, which we're measuring through through the gases we're taking, energy expenditure is a lot lower. So yeah, exercise is always the option. But if you can't exercise, you're not willing to exercise, then jump in your, in your tub and you might still get some benefits. Okay, Chris, so you've done this research, but do we have specifics yet? How long should I sit in a sauna or a hot tub if I've got one? And how often? I would love to be able to tell you and the listeners, you know, that you need to take a bath this many times a week for this long at this temperature. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have a concrete answer to that yet. And that's because, it's, like I said earlier, it's dependent on the magnitude of the stimulus for one. But in general, based on what's available in terms of research at the moment, taking a hot bath over a period of two to eight weeks, three to five times per week, around 30 to 60 minutes at around 39 to 40 degrees has been shown to benefit metabolic and cardiovascular health. So yeah, but in terms of combining that with exercise and using it after exercise, um, it hasn't been done yet. So hopefully there'll be more positive findings coming soon. Well, uh, I certainly hope that, you know, 10 years down the road, my doctor will give me a prescription to go sit in a sauna. Yeah, sure, definitely. <laughs> uh, awesome, Charles. Well, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate the time. So uh, it's been great chatting with you. Cheers, Dan. Thanks. You can read a story Charles wrote about the benefits of a hot bath or sauna on The Conversation. We'll pop a link in the show notes. To end this week, we've got some recommended reading from Lucia Caballero, editorial coordinator at The Conversation in Madrid. Hi, this is Lucia Caballero. I'm an energy and environment editor for The Conversation based in Madrid, Spain. The first of the two stories that I'm recommending you today is related to the volcanic eruption that has taken place in the Canary Island of La Palma since September 19, lasting more than one week. The volcano has different mouths and around 6,000 people have been evacuated because of the lava that has destroyed more than 500 houses and buildings in different villages of the island. In view of the situation, we could wonder why volcanic territories are inhabited. Maria Belén Benito Terino, a researcher from the Polytechnical University of Madrid, explains how volcanic hazards are assessed. People live in areas like La Palma because of the low frequency of volcanic events and thanks to all the technical and scientific tools available to predict the eruptions, react on time and avoid human losses. My second recommendation is a story about city growth written by José Manuel Ros García, an expert from CEU San Pablo University. According to the United Nations, close to 70% of the global population will live in urban areas in 2050. Avoiding their collapse is one of the main challenges of the future. The author says that to grow in a sustainable way, cities should be understood as ecosystems. They should optimize the use of natural resources and make sure that they guarantee the health and well-being of their citizens. The question is if, even under these conditions, they can grow unlimitedly. That's all for me. I hope you enjoy the readings. Lucia Caballero in Madrid. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors, Laura Hood, Josephine Lethbridge, Paul Keevney and Stephen Kahn. 
and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. And of course, you can sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And do it the old-fashioned way. Just tell your friends, tell your family. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Reno. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.